Well, dear congregation, I invite you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to those words that were read to you in the Acts of the Apostles and the 16th chapter. And as you're turning there, let me first of all briefly express my heartfelt gratitude for the warm welcome to the ministry here today and the kind invitation to minister God's Word among you. It's good to be amongst many friends, friends here from Walsh and the Willows and surrounding churches and dear friends that I've known for many years. And it's my great joy and privilege to be asked to minister the Word of God among you here at this Essex and Suffolk and Norfolk Trinitarian Bible Society Auxiliary Meeting this afternoon. We're thankful for the work that has been done over the last four years since the inception of the auxiliary here. Many encouraging things that have taken place and may the Lord continue to help you in your labor of love for him. Uh, his word, I must remind you, shall not return unto him void, but shall accomplish the purpose for which it has been sent forth to do. It's a great joy, brethren, isn't it, to come uh, to worship God, to sing the hymns that we've sung, but to believe in a God that cannot lie. It's a great privilege for us to know that God is true. He is not a capricious God. He has given us his word the psalmist says in Psalm 100 verse 5, Thy truth shall endure unto all generations. God has promised to keep His Word precious to all successive generations. That is until the final epoch, until that final day when the Lord Jesus Christ shall come upon the clouds of glory. We read there, did we not, in Acts chapter 1, how the apostles were gathered there, and as they saw the Lord Jesus Christ ascend up and up and up into the heavens. And they were told by the two men in the white apparel, Why stand ye here gazing? And they said, This same Lord Jesus shall again appear in like manner. In other words, reminding them, as he has said in many of the parables, that we must be laboring. We're not to be standing around waiting. He will come. He that shall come will come. And he will not tarry. And uh, he has given us a work to do. And he has given us a faithful word. His word will continue to all generations. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 152, concerning thy testimonies, the psalmist says, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. His word is forever. It is the enduring word. The grass withers, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Not one jot nor one tittle will pass from the law, said the Lord Jesus. Not even the uh, most small letter will be lost. God has promised to preserve his word. And we do rejoice as we have, we believe, the most faithful translation of the Word of God from the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Greek Textus Receptus here this afternoon, that God has promised to preserve His Word, and we do thank the Lord for that special providential care. God has providentially promised to keep His Word, not just to keep the Word, but to keep it pure from corruption. There are so many uh, modern corruptions, where the Word of God has been disemboweled, eviscerated. Sadly, so many omissions from the Word of God. The words of God 
are faithful and they are true and they are pure. The psalmist reminds us the words of the Lord are pure words. Now, silver tried in a furnace of earth, tried seven times. It's a picture of purity, isn't it? And of course, God, who has given his word, will preserve it. Well, for what reasons? Well, because God cannot lie. He has promised and he will make good that promise. But he has kept his word also, not just for the glory of his name, but because he has a people to save. And he has a church to keep, and that they will be sanctified. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, Father, sanctify them by thy word or by thy truth. Thy word is truth. And therefore, we ought to be gratefully thankful, truly thankful and humbled that we have a faithful translation here. And we take no pride in that. That's all, of course, of God. And God is pleased through the instrumentality of his word, and His Spirit. And that's what we want to speak about here this afternoon. It's not just the Word, but it is the Holy Spirit taking that Word that is preached, whereby He draws sinners unto Himself. He, first of all, regenerates them, and He brings them their Word. They would never receive the Word except they be born again. Remember the words to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see nor enter the kingdom of heaven. And as John writes in 1 John 5, 1, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And so the soul that is quickened receives the word. Remember what the Lord Jesus said in John 6, 63 rather, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But many did not receive his word. And many will not receive his word. But thank God, many will. And many will be saved. God is determined to save a people for himself. Well, as we come to this passage this afternoon, I'm just reminding you of some of the central tenets of what we believe. We believe that God has promised to keep his word. We believe in the doctrine of the divine preservation of holy scripture. But we also believe in the truth that it is all of God. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of man. And therefore, it gives us great encouragement. No doubt, you will have discouragements in the work. And I trust that what we'll see from this passage, there were discouragements. It's a very familiar passage, and I do thank that dear brother for reading such a long passage of Scripture and faithfully. But I trust that we will see the hand of God at work while the seed is sown. We're reminded, aren't we, in Ecclesiastes, cast thy bread upon the waters, for after many days it shall return unto thee. And we're told in that very chapter, just as a mother has a child in the womb, so we know not the way of the Spirit. As the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind bloweth, listeth where it will, so we know not how the Spirit works, but he does work. He that observes the cloud, says Solomon, will not sow. We are to give a portion 
to seven, yea, even to eight? Well, because indeed after many days, the seed, the word, our bread, will return. It is the Spirit that giveth life. And as God has said in Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goeth forth from my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. And so, friends, we will have disappointments as we come to this passage. But remember this, and take heart in this. We do not have a God that is ever disappointed, do we? We do not have a God that is surprised at failures. But we have a God, as Job said, He is of one mind, and who can turn Him? And what His soul desireth, that He doeth. And He has determined to save from the very four quarters of this world a multitude of people which no man can number out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And every one of them shall be in glory. Well, as we read from Acts chapter 1, I said to you, I reminded you there, how the Lord Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven. After his passion, after his suffering, after his death, his burial and his resurrection, and appearing unto his disciples for 40 days. And he said, they said rather, the men in the white apparel, why stand ye up in gazing up into heaven, this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And we read here of the apostles, how they have gone out into the world. Paul, after being indeed in Arabia for three years, as the Lord instructed him prior to his ministry, we know the apostle Paul has been converted just after the stoning there of Stephen in Acts 7, but in Acts 8, and then in Acts 9, we see how the Lord stops him on the road and he is converted and he is made an apostle to the Gentiles. And we see the early church here flourishing and growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. But this same self-same gospel must be preached into all the world. There will be one day a final sermon when the last sheep is drawn in to the fold. As the Lord Jesus said there in Matthew chapter 24 and the verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Suddenly, when the last one is drawn in. But let me say this, friends, as you and I Look across England. There are large parts, are there not, in England that are in abject darkness. This was once a land that knew the Word of God. As we look around, we see so many empty churches and empty pews. It is a land where the so-called mainstream Christianity 
has dumbed down the Word of God. There are so many debauched and disemboweled versions of God's Word where God is not held in reverence. We have the new gender-neutral pronoun Bible, the new Revised Standard Version, that is an abomination. And there is no fear of God. And uh, everything seems to be tolerated today. Except intolerance, of course. And it is, of course, my desire this afternoon to encourage you in the faithful distribution of God's Word. But there will be many seeming discouragements. And I want to glean some aspects from this passage of Scripture that I hope will encourage you and I in the work of the Lord. Well, here in Acts chapter 16, the time is somewhere around 49 AD. Paul is on his second missionary journey. And if you notice in the verse 6, the Lord forbids him and Silas to go to Asia. Now notice verse 6, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, or Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Now we may ask, why Lord? Why forbidden? And we may even say, well Lord, don't you know? There are thousands dying every day in Asia who have never heard the Word of God, who have never known the way of life, Well, my dear friends, we could bring this even on a greater scale, couldn't we? What about the whole world? You can almost hear the critic murmuring, well, that's not fair. It doesn't seem to be right. Most people do not hear the Word of God. On this planet of over seven and a half billion people, there are somewhere around 7,100 people dying every hour. Every hour, nearly two people every second dying, going to a lost eternity. Approximately 110 deaths a minute. The vast majority of people, having never heard the Word of God, having never repented, well, what is the problem? Well, let me say this. Even if the world could hear the Word, would they believe it? What's your answer? No. Why? Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity with God. It's neither subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. It's not subject to God, although man is born with a moral law impregnated upon the very fiber of his being. Paul says in Romans 2, 14 and 15, even the Gentiles having the law written upon their hearts so that when they go to do good, their conscience affirms it. They know man is a moral being made in the image of God. And God is just. And God is just and would be just to send all to hell my dear friends. And so the solemn reality is regarding this question, God is just. 
And this reminds us, when we come to Scripture, whenever we preach the Word or read the Word, we are never given warrant to eviscerate or to disembowel the Word of God, certain parts of it, and put man on a higher moral level than the Scriptures ever give warrant. Well, that's man today, isn't it? He begins thinking wrong about himself, not understanding that he is born a rebel, alienated, separated from the life of God. So why not Asia, Paul? Well, Dr. John Gill puts it very plainly. The reasons why it was prohibited to preach here at this time must be referred to the sovereign will of God. It seems that at this instant, there were no chosen ones to be called by grace. I'm sorry if I have offended you, but I simply cannot preach the Word of God and cut out certain truths and try to accommodate people's feelings. Facts are facts, and God states it as it is. Man by nature is a child of wrath. Born a sinner, born a hater of God. And therefore it humbles us, doesn't it, if we are saved, if we are brought to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, if we were ever brought out of this world to know God, to love God, who has made all things, I mean the heavens and the earth, declare the glory of God day unto day, night unto night. These things cry out to God. There is a God in heaven, but man lives as a clenched fist in the face of Almighty God every day. The fool has said in his heart, not his head, there is no God. It's a heart problem. It's a sin condition, isn't it? But thank God for the sovereignty of God. Oh, my dear friends, the truth rightly understood will always humble us and make us thankful And no doubt you will find shut doors. You will find hardened faces in the distribution of God's Word. I'm involved at another auxiliary, the Trinitarian Bible Society, and I can tell you this, for many years we put out posters, TBS posters at the train stations, and then all of a sudden we get a telephone call, the Kettering Station. You've got to stop those posters. You've got to take them all down. Why one woman was offended. But my dear friends, God is no man's debtor. Well, the word of God grieved her. She was offended. And the displays are now banned. But we must remember that God is sovereign. And if he willed that posters be there, they will be there. But my friends, our God is not a small God, but a small s, wringing his hands every day, saying, what will I do next? My dear friends, the very fact that the posters are banned there is all in the providence of God. And it may well be the means of God's judicial hardening upon parts of our land, or The Lord may be opening up other avenues for us. Our God is on His throne. 
and he is no man's debtor. God is not limited. This was the problem with Israel. They limited the Almighty. Is he not God? Does he not know all things? All things are subject to God. All things work according to his sovereign decree. And God, as Jonathan reminded his armor-bearer, remember, in 1 Samuel 14, he said, There is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And my friends, you could have 10,000 posters out there all over the country. Would it make a difference? No, not unless God moves in the heart of a soul. Not unless God quickens a soul. You could have posters all over the, the country, on every avenue. It wouldn't change the human heart, would it? Wouldn't change the human heart. But we do preach the word and hope that God will be pleased to move. It's a humbling thing, but it's a blessed thing, isn't it? Now the key to all of this is God's word going out, but the power of his spirit at work. Now I want you to notice if you just turn, we've considered therefore in the first place God's sovereignty in forbidding the Apostle Paul going to Asia at this time. In Acts 17, we notice how Paul, he goes to Athens, and he is uh, stirred within his heart, he's incensed at all the idols that he finds in the marketplace. He saw the city wholly given to idolatry. There was an idol, it seems, on almost every corner. And it says there, he was grieved in his spirit. Why? Because men had reduced God to an image. Does the Lord not say in Isaiah, I will not give my praise unto idols? You see, Paul, when he was there, and he saw all of this, he was jealous for God's glory. He didn't say, oh, poor sinners. But his heart immediately was broken over the very fact that God's creatures, men made in the image of God, do not glorify Him. The locus classicus, or the classic text upon revival, Isaiah 64. Do we not read? Isaiah writes, and he's, he's burdened for the world, he's burdened for Israel and the people that do not worship God, he says, oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow at thy presence. Why, Isaiah? That the nations may tremble at thy name. This should be our great burden, the glory of God. This should be our great concern. Paul, when he went to Athens, he was incensed. And of course, we should go out for two reasons. Primarily for the glory of God. In everything that we do, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, Whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. We are made to glorify God. This is the chief end of man, to glorify Him and to know God. 
and to love our fellow men, to love our neighbor as ourself, yes, but never put the one before the other. Otherwise, we become humanists. Paul was not a humanist. We put God first. And when God saves a man, it is not simply to take him to heaven, but it is to make him holy in this world and to change him and to fit him for glory. That's the reason why God saves, to have a holy people, a zealous people, and who believe in his power, except God move in the heart, men will never be converted. Now this never makes us complacent, does it? In the ministry of God's word, the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty of God, that never makes us and should never make us complacent. To say, oh well, God's going to save who he will. The very opposite. The fact that we believe God converts gives us all the more encouragement, doesn't it? To take his word out to this lost world. Secondly, the way forward, verse 9 And to the end of the chapter, the Lord speaks by a man. As Paul that night has a vision, and a man crying out in that vision from Macedonia says, Come and help us. Verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed to him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. We don't know who exactly this man is. Maybe the one, one of the ones we know here, we've read here from the passage. Maybe one of the household members praying. Help us! And the Lord speaks in this way, the Lord. Indeed, in these times, the apostles endued and endowed with peculiar gifts. But you know, the Lord can speak in many ways, ways of providence to us. Anyway, the Paul receives this cry of help, and it must have been very destitute. It shows, doesn't it, indeed how miserable the place must have been at this time. And we read here, he goes down to Philippi. Now, Philippi was a colony of Macedonia. You notice that in the verse 21, because uh, when Paul is uh, about to be thrown into prison with Silas, and uh, the people of the city and the owners of this damsel, they complain and they say this concerning the Apostle Paul, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And then again in the verse 37, when Paul later refuses to be released, he said, you know, we're Romans too, and we were wrongly imprisoned, and let them come and speak to us. So it was a Roman colony at this time. Now, the next thing. Not only does the Lord open up the way, but he opens up a heart. And thank God for that. Here it seems in this family, there is one whose heart is not opened. We read here of this woman on verse 13 and 14. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the woman which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple and of the city of Thyatira, 
which worshipped God heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. So this woman from Thyatira, and we know we can read the book of the Revelation, there will be a church there much later on, when that was written somewhere around 95, 98 AD. And, uh, well, this woman, she seems to be a prosperous woman at the end of the chapter. She has a house, and those in her house later are called brethren. And it seems that they are saved. Now the Lord here opened her heart. Paul was sent down to preach the Word of God. But that preaching was of no effect until the Lord opened the heart, so that she attended the Word. For all of her outward worship, we're told here she worshipped, it was worship, perhaps just in form, in ritual. She went through the motions. Maybe there are people here that have sat under ministry for years. And you go through the form, through the ritual, you know what to say. It's in the head, maybe. But the heart is closed up to God. And it would be here until God opened it up. The Lord opened up her heart. It was like a rock, we could say impregnable it's true for every heart isn't it the Lord gave a new heart as the Lord said to Nicodemus teaching him Nicodemus came by night and he said to him Nicodemus thou art a teacher of the law but marvel not at this Nicodemus I said unto thee ye must be born again the wind bloweth where it listeth but thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh. Now this was a quiet wakening, wasn't it, of her heart. Nobody saw it, but there was a change. She looked like the real deal, perhaps, to many. Unlike the Philippian jailer down the road. He wasn't here at this prayer meeting. Well, the Lord opens up her heart. And uh, we read later, verse 40, she believed, and we're told in the verse 40, and when they had went out of prison and entered into the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. It seems, as we're told here, her whole household was baptized. Now, there are no, there are varying views on this. We won't linger on that. That is my view, my understanding. Anyway, they were all baptized, we're told, in the verse 16. And then immediately, verse six, sorry, verse 15 and so on, but it comes to pass, as soon as they are baptized, we went to prayer. And that I take it to be there at the riverside, and a certain damsel, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. It's very interesting, isn't it? Immediately, as Paul and the others engage in prayer, lo, comes one with a spirit of divination to disrupt. Now, my friends, Satan will do all that he can to destroy our prayer time, to disrupt the prayer meeting. But at any rate, this woman, this young damsel, she begins to cry out, not just the once, verse 17, but many days, wherever Paul went, and Silas went, she cries out, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this, we're told, she did many days. Day after day. My, this was weary for Paul. 
And we're told that he was being grieved in his spirit. Cried out, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the Lord was sovereignly pleased to do that mighty, insuperable work. Well, that landed Paul and Silas in prison. You see what I mean? Disappointments. I know this is a very familiar passage to you, friends, but I want to spend a little bit more time now upon the Philippian jailer here. Well, this, what Paul did and Silas as they, the Lord casts out the evil spirit from her, this lands them up in prison because she could no longer get her employer's gain. And they're losing out on so much money. She could no longer carry on in her wicked craft. And Paul and Silas are thrown in the prison, in the inner prison, in the stocks. They've beaten badly. Paul would never have chosen this. But again, this is all of God's choosing, isn't it? It is all of God's will. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, verse 23, and cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, oh, he took a solemn charge. And I believe, there are varying views upon this jailer, I believe that he was a very stern man, serious about his job and about his work. You, you read even after they were, the prison was loosed and they wanted to stay, he kept them. He kept his charge. And we'll see a few things about him. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, agreeing to that solemn charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And we read here of this, and at midnight, when everyone, and certainly the jailer is asleep, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed, prayed to God, and they sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them, only the prisoners. The jailer doesn't hear, but the prisoners do. And suddenly, at this midnight, there was a great earthquake, a mighty earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And of course... We read verse 27, And the keeper of the prison, waking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he didn't hear them. He woke out of his sleep and drew out his sword and would have killed himself. Why? Because he took a solemn charge to watch these men because he knew what was coming his way had they escaped, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But we read here, Paul saying with a loud voice, Do thyself no harm, for we're all here. Now think of it for a moment. Come with me in your mind's eye. He has settled this jailer. We're all here. All is well. No need to worry. Count us. We're here. And consider this, humanly speaking, this jailer, he would be the town hero, wouldn't he? A great earthquake has thundered. The prison doors are broken over. And lo and behold, all the bands of the prisoners have come loose. Nothing to fear. 
He'll be thought well of. But he comes in trembling. Nothing to fear, humanly speaking. All is well. All the prisoners are there in order. But he comes and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He is not thinking about the prison. He is not thinking now about those who could have escaped. He knows they're all there. What is upon his mind is he is a guilty sinner before Almighty God. But the wrath of God is sure. He is not safe. For years, this man has probably looked down upon sinners, these filthy, stench sinners. Look at them. But now he sees himself unsaved, lost. You say, where where did that come from? Some people have suggested, well, because we ask the question, how did he know he was lost? Some have said, well, he heard Paul and Silas singing. Well, the text doesn't say that. The text says the other prisoners heard. The text doesn't say he heard. Some suggest, and it's quite possible, Paul had given a word, had preached Paul or Silas to him. Or perhaps something before, maybe something had gone on in the town of Philippi, as Lydia's household. And we read here even of his household. His household, we're told, believed. That's what the text says. His household believed. But they weren't yet baptized. They hadn't yet heard the gospel. There was a sense in which God had done a work This man now, all of a sudden, comes under great conviction of sin. All of a sudden, what must I do to be saved? He understands. It's like this. I once heard, this is a true story. There was an elderly man in the days of Whitfield, or shortly after. That in his late 80s and recently converted. And he said, you know, I went to church as a child. And then I stopped going. Then one day God saved me. He said, said, but did you go to church? He said, no. He said, George Whitfield preached once and I never forgot it. That's the word, my friend. You may put a text up years later. It's working in the mind of some poor soul. When God, by His Spirit, regenerates that person, they are made alive. And that text becomes real. And the thunders of the law come upon the soul and the soul sees that they're undone. There's no sign before. I mean, this man, he wouldn't go down to the prayer meeting, would he? He wouldn't go with Lydia and the family. He wouldn't go with her household. He wouldn't go with his household. It seems that 
Well, he's the one that says here, what must I do? They hear the preaching of the word because we're told here. We, we read. Look at verse 34. I'll read from verse 32. Verse 31, I beg your pardon. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. So they all heard the preaching of the word. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his straightway. When he had brought them into his house, he sent meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Now it seems to me, my understanding, that this man and Lydia, the Lord brought them to hear the word of God in this remarkable way. God had been at work. I mean, the people were praying in Philippi, weren't they? There was a prayer meeting. But now the word comes not in word only, but in power and in demonstration of the Holy Ghost and much assurance. Now you say, well, where's repentance? Well, I believe that this heart was already regenerated because the scripture tells us, 1 John 5, 1, whosoever believeth, and that's not a simple mental assent, is it? But it's an ongoing believing upon and resting upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus. In other words, not just now, but present, active, continuous. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's true for our salvation, is it? We don't just look back upon a day, but we're believing today. We are the Lord's. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. My friends, Paul preached Christ, no doubt. And that's what we are to do. We know not who the Lord will save, but He will save. And our disappointments of the Lord's appointments. Paul would never have chosen, humanly speaking, to go into the prison to receive stripes. But it is the means by which the Word of God gets to this jailer. How remarkable the Lord is. This man when he sees all the prisoners around, the prison doors open, the shackles broken, most men, humanly speaking, would say, that's great. Get in the rest of the authorities. Get in everybody here. I'm going to be the hero of the town. The great burden of this man's soul is, what must I do to be saved? That, my friends, is the work of God. When a man is so burdened for his soul, the world and what the world thinks means nothing to him. This man, all he could think about was his soul. But the balm for his soul was preached. Jesus Christ. Oh, what an encouragement. We love that hymn, don't we? 
God willing, we'll sing it. Hail, sovereign love that first began the scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail, matchless, free, eternal grace that gave my soul a hiding place. Against the God who rules the sky, I fought with hand uplifted high, despised the mention of His grace. Too proud to seek a hiding place. Enwrapped in thick Egyptian night and fond of darkness more than light, madly I ran the sinful race, secure without a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsel ran, Almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. Thank the Lord, the Lord Jesus became the hiding place for his people. My friends, Isaiah 32 tells us, and a man shall be a hiding place. A shelter from the storm. A covert from the great tempest. The great awful day of wrath is coming. But Christ there upon the cross at Calvary bore damnation for His people. He bore it lovingly so that He could cry, Tetelestai, it is finished. He finished the wrath that would have poured upon his people forever and ever. And we can preach to people, those who come truly broken, penitent in their hearts. And I tell you, those are the Lord's people, broken in heart by the Spirit of God, made to feel their sin. See this man, can you not see him? Kneeling down. It, it was unbecoming. He thought Paul was a Jew. He thought these men, what, what is this Gentile doing, bowing, kneeling down, humbled? Well, he's humbled by God. And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in him. And my friend, as Joseph Hart says, let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. You're not fit. No one is. Only Christ. Man is only fit for Christ if he sees his unworthiness. This, Joseph Hart says, he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. God has laid you low. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has truly humbled you. You have every warrant to believe Christ died for you. You are His, and your life will prove it. And you will be humbled, and God will make you useful for His glory and for his kingdom. Paul could say this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief.
My friend, he saves the chief of sinners. Seek him. Maybe there are those who worship in ritual or form, but do not know Christ. It was so for this man. His family saw it. But his heart needed to be opened. His heart needed to be broken, just as Lydia. And my friend, God will sometimes surprise us, will he not, in the work. Doors will be shut. But bless God, he will break open other doors. Even prison doors. Because he has his people. And not one of them will be lost on that final day. Amen.